Reformation Fellowship provides support and fellowship to all who would stand for the reformation of Christ's church worldwide. We long to see the church revitalized by the gospel and seek to encourage all who share that vision. We gather together for gospel-hearted fellowship around gospel-minded theology. We are a ministry of unity. Greetings and welcome back to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. I am your host, Justin Schell. And friends, today we are going to break with our normal habit of having a guest on and me interviewing them, trying to soak up as much wisdom as we can in our time together. And instead, we are going to have Michael Reeves address us directly. The next three episodes, we're going to hear from Mike in the first episode, A Call to Reformation, Part 1. And, and then the second episode will be a part two of that. So uh, we're going to get two weeks, two episodes, uh, where Mike is going to plead with us and invite the church to, to engage in, to partner towards, to pray towards, to hope towards, to, to act and minister towards Reformation together. So this week and next week will be a call to Reformation. And then the third episode, Mike's going to going to answer the question, what is Reformation Fellowship? Now, you've been around maybe the podcast a little bit, and so you kind of have an idea of that, or maybe you've been on, on the website, uh, but we want you to hear from Dr. Reeves. What is Reformation Fellowship? Why do we exist? We will talk about that here and there a little bit from time to time, but, but that's going to be a whole episode just to help remind us and to inform anyone that may be new around here, inform them what the Reformation Fellowship is. So I know you're going to be challenged. I know you're going to be encouraged. And I look forward to seeing what God might do through these next three episodes. So friends, this is Dr. Michael Reeves, president of Union, lecturer in theology, historical theology, and church history at Union School of Theology. And he's going to be talking to us and issuing a call to reformation. This is part one. Morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Uh, A very, very warm welcome to us here. I know some of you have come for quite some way to be here. Um, I've I've spoken to people who've come down from Scotland last night. Uh, There's, we have Athens, uh, Oklahoma, um, I don't know if we have anyone further than Oklahoma. You might be the winners. Well done. Well done. Wherever you've come from, a great big welcome, because it's just lovely to actually be together in person a little bit, and not just for these sessions, but just to be able to spend a little bit of time with each other um, over these next couple of days. So a very, very warm welcome to you. Now, what is the point of being here? What's the point of what we're all about? I hope you know, I hope it's clear, but if it's not, let me tell you briefly. What we're here for, our vision, what we want to see, is the reformation of Christ's church worldwide. That's what everything is all about in what we're doing. We want to see Christ's church purified, beautified, healthier, growing through the world so that the glory of Jesus shines through the world. We want her to be 
radiating Christ to the world, proclaiming him faithfully to the world. That's what we're about. Pure reformational churches proclaiming Christ. Now you could say, well, okay, that's a very sort of almost pie-in-the-sky dream, isn't it? That's, um, what might that have to do with everyday life? But actually, that big vision, it's not only directing every little bit of what we do here. If you share the vision of Reformation, it's something that will impact you every day. Because true reformation must start at home. And this was very much what the Puritans saw. After the Reformation had been going for a generation or two, um, the Puritans, uh, John Milton put it like this, he saw that the Puritans wanted to see the reforming of the Reformation. That was what they were about. And what the Puritans saw was that True reformation will mean the reformation of doctrine. So the recovery, for example, of justification by faith alone. It'll mean the reformation of doctrine. It will mean the reformation of institutions. But it's got to mean more than that as well. True reformation means personal reformation. It means the driving of the gospel, the word of God, into all our hearts so that we ourselves are changed. So what Dane was talking about with growing in Christ, that is the work of reformation. And there is no point in seeing institutions or the structures of churches reformed if lives and hearts are not reformed. So we have a big vision of reformation and our values are to help us get there because there's no reformation without personal reformation. It means, friends, to believe in reformation. If you share this vision, you cannot be content with a paper orthodoxy. Now, we want you to be orthodox. We value orthodoxy, but we don't want orthodoxy to be alone. And do you know the sort of thing I'm talking about? An orthodoxy of head that doesn't seem to work out into life. That you can have a preacher who seems to preach grace, and somehow, even in his tone, there can be a joylessness and a harshness that seems to make you think, well, grace seems to you to be something different to how it strikes me in Scripture. The language of grace can happily thrive where the reality of something else has taken hold. You can have an evangelical, an evangelical head and something else going on in your heart. Hypocrisy, Phariseeism. And so... With that vision of reformation before us, looking to see how can we reform ourselves so that we might rightly go forward in the mission of reforming the church, I want to ask this question. How then can we be reforming ourselves this year? And very specifically for you students, how can you be an evangelical student.
this year. What I mean by that is how can you be a student of the evangel, of the gospel? How can you be a student shaped by the evangel? How can you have evangelical integrity in your studies this year and not be a hypocrite? If you flick to Luke 12, Luke 12, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says first to the disciples end of verse 1 beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy that's that is the leaven of the Pharisees now let's be clear on this, to to be a hypocrite, hypocrisy, the nature of it is to wear a mask, to cover over who you really are with a pretense and show, meaning that you lose connection with your true self because you're covering it up, you're pretending to be something else. And because of the nature of masks, hypocrisy is actually something that's very hard to spot. Because the whole point of wearing the mask is so that you're not spotted. You're meant to be covering up who you are. And when you wear a mask, usually you ultimately defeat, um, deceive yourself. So that you don't even see the deception anymore. And therefore, you think, of course, I'm not a hypocrite. That's something for the cartoon villains of Scripture. And yet, Jesus says to his disciples who'd left everything for him, Jesus says to his inner core, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So, how can we avoid this hypocrisy and have an evangelical integrity, particularly as you study this year? Well, what was the nub of the Pharisees' problem? Could I ask you to turn to one other passage? Could you turn with me to John chapter 5? And I want you to have verses 39 to the end just in view. And I think this is the nub of the Pharisees' problem. Jesus' argument with the Jewish leaders, he says, verse 39, you search the scriptures, says Jesus, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So, Uh, Don't shut it, because I want you to go on in just a bit. So they've got a theological problem concerning their view of Scripture. But that theological error has deeper roots. Not in some interpretative error that they made, but in a sickness of the heart 
Look down at verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Wow. How can you even believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That was the wellspring of their every mistake. They were addicted to the praise of others. And so they never looked up to see the glory that comes from God. Theirs was the basic addiction that feeds hypocrisy. They longed for applause. And so they cultivated their applaudable personas for the world to admire. And so the broken reality of their true selves was hidden beneath put-on masks of righteousness. And the longer it went on, the more hidden their true reality became, even from themselves. So they became frauds, and not even they knew it anymore. Isn't that terrifying? Not even they knew who they were under the mask anymore. Cut off from God, they'd become cut off from themselves. You know, C.S. Lewis um, describes his experience of growth in hypocrisy in um, his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And he talks about the time when, as a boy... He's supposed to be confirmed in the Anglican Church. And confirmation in the Anglican Church is, is a, um, it's a right by which you're asked to profess or confirm your faith. Lewis's problem was he didn't have any faith in Christ. But he wanted to get confirmed to win the approval of his father. And so he said, I went ahead in total disbelief, acting apart, eating and drinking my own condemnation. As Johnson points out, this is a good observation, where courage is not, no other virtue can survive except by accident. And Lewis concludes, cowardice drove me into hypocrisy and hypocrisy into blasphemy. So for the Pharisees, it all began with a basic posture of the heart. That's where the problem started. Looking down. That was the issue. They looked down on others as they compared themselves with them. And they looked down to others to receive praise from them. But in all that looking down, it meant they never saw what was above them. They never saw the high glory of God. Now, they thought they did. But only by reading the approval of others as the approval of God. And isn't that easy? 
People say, oh, well done. And you think, yes. Yes, yes, God must be approving through their approval. Looking down, they were reading the glory of God as something that is simply like our glory. As if God is simply a pumped up version of me. Shinier, more powerful, but basically like me. And so they never imagined the true nature of the glory of God revealed in the face of this gentle and lowly Jesus. They never imagined a God in whose presence they could never stand unless he had a mercy they did not. They never considered the loving nature of the God who is so beyond them, so different to them. And here's where this bites if you're studying this year. That posture of looking down really suited their love of study. For the Pharisees were a scholarly sect. Looking down, they poured over the scriptures, becoming masters of the text. And that mastery was their aim. Therein, they thought, was life. And it was their only reward. Because they did not allow scripture to turn their gaze upward to the author of life. Now, having seen their heart problem that's fueling the issues, what exactly is the theological problem that arose from the hypocrisy? Well, like the deeper sickness, superficially it looked great. It looked very commendable. They diligently searched the scriptures. What's wrong with that? Keenly aware of the privilege that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, they became fastidious students of Scripture, weighing every syllable, counting the number of words, even letters, in each book of Scripture. Instructed from the law, they, they held themselves to be Guides to the blind, a light to those in darkness. And the thing was, it wasn't just about being accurate and responsible with God's word. As they saw it, such diligent study was the heart of godliness. The rabbinic targums represent God as a punctilious scholar. We're told that in them that he busies himself by day with the study of the scriptures. So to be godly means to do the same. As if life could be had in the mere apprehension of the words. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And actually that is just how they spoke. Again, in the Targums, Rabbi Hillel, we're told, used to say, 
The more Torah, the more life. The more sitting in the company of scholars, the more wisdom. If one acquires a good name, he's acquired something for himself. If one acquires for himself knowledge of Torah, he has acquired life in the world to come. But engrossed in the words of Scripture, the Pharisees failed to see the truth of Scripture. So their diligence searching of the Scriptures wasn't a bad thing at all, but it was short-sighted. Their searching had become mere analysis without spiritual insight or perception mistaking saving faith for bare knowledge of information, think about what that does to you. If godliness is simply amassing knowledge of the scriptures, I can leave my heart unsearched. They were thinking that the human problem is basically ignorance. Simply that. And the solution, therefore, is learning. But because of that, they failed to see just how deep the sickness went within them. The problem wasn't simply in an ignorance of their mind, but in a sinfulness of their hearts. And so they diligently studied the scriptures, but refused to go to Jesus for life. Now, sometimes evangelicals are accused of being guilty of the error of the Pharisees for having such a high view of scripture. I don't know if you've heard that accusation. Uh, evangelicals are bibliolaters, worshippers of Scripture itself. It's not actually a fair charge. Um, because in theory, anyway, in theory, evangelicals simply seek to share Jesus' own view of Scripture. Uh, and for Jesus, Scripture is the written word of God. What Scripture says, God says, even when it's spoken by a prophet. So when Jesus in Mark 7, for instance, is looking at Exodus 20, some words that Moses said, he said, have you not read what God said? So the fault of the Pharisees wasn't that they had a high view of Scripture. Jesus had that. It was that they had a wrong view of Scripture as the saving object of faith. They thought that in the Scriptures, in the bare knowledge of the Scriptures, they had life. So it is not a view of Scripture as such that's the problem, but evangelicals, and I think it's fair to say, theological college students can and do all too frequently fall into this sin of the Pharisees. We treat scripture as an end in itself. Uh, it's a temptation for us in just the same way as it was a temptation for the Pharisees. And it's easy to say, hey, look, I was spending all that time in scripture sort of rushing through it just because I had an essay to do and therefore that's why I was diligently studying the scriptures and not going to Christ for life. But actually, I think ultimately there's an excuse. What's really going on underneath is it's much easier to do away with the discomfort of having our hearts 
searched and our sins exposed if we think the basic problem is just ignorance and the solution is just more Bible knowledge. Because if you think that's it, it's just accrue more knowledge, and of course we love the benefits of knowledge here, but if you think mere knowledge is the solution, you ignore the deep darkness and dirtiness within us. We're so glad you've joined us here on the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. We'd love to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please, in all those places, do not hesitate to reach out. Let us know how we can serve you, pray for you, serve your churches in any way possible. God bless.